Hi, I'm Adam Day, and this is Hybrid Wars, a show about how violent conflict is becoming more complex, more dangerous, and harder to stop than ever. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes, I'd recommend going back and tuning in to at least the first one, where we go over the big questions we're looking at in this series. But if you're an Iraq junkie, saw the title of the show, and just want to jump straight in here, welcome. Before we get started, a quick shout out to UK Aid, the part of the British government that funded all of our research to Iraq, Somalia, and Nigeria. The next two episodes are about Iraq. Today, we'll be talking about the battle against the Islamic State, the brutal extremist group that took over huge parts of Iraq's territory in 2014. We'll focus on the popular mobilization units. These are paramilitary groups that sprung up in local Iraqi communities to defend themselves against ISIS. These groups were, and they still are, the backbone of the fight against ISIS. To some Iraqis, they're heroes who deserve the recognition they get. To others, the popular mobilization units are dangerous non-state actors that might drag Iraq into a new war. Now, before we get to the PMU, we need a quick refresher on ISIS. And to do that, we need to go way back to 2003. Remember when the U.S. invaded Iraq? My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. The American people were told Saddam Hussein was building nuclear weapons. He was not. We were told that he had stockpiles of other weapons of mass destruction. He did not. We were told he was involved in 9-11. He was not. We were told Iraq was attracting terrorists from Al-Qaeda. It was not. We were told our soldiers would be viewed as liberators. They are not. We were told Iraq could pay for its own reconstruction. It cannot. And we were told that the war would make America safe for this. It has not. Before the war, week after week after week after week, we were told lie after lie after lie after lie. One of the first things the U.S. Army did after they occupied the country was to fire pretty much anyone who had worked for Saddam Hussein. They let go of all the Sunni generals, all the ministers, anyone who they thought was loyal to Saddam. They called it debathification, purging the Iraqi government of anyone who was in Saddam's party. This ended Sunni control of Iraq's government and eventually led to the Shia-dominated one we have today. The purge of the generals in 2003 and 4 created a group of highly trained Sunni soldiers who had no job prospects in Iraq. They couldn't be in the army. The U.S. wouldn't let them back in. And there weren't really other options for them in Iraq's devastated economy. I'll give you one guess what happened to them. Well, after al-Qaeda in Iraq was formed in 2004, many of these former soldiers joined up. It was a chance to be part of a military force, and they knew they didn't have a future in the Iraqi army. When al-Qaeda in Iraq became the Islamic State in Iraq in 2006, there they were, former soldiers in Saddam's army, angry with the Iraqi government for pushing them out, and upset that a combination of U.S. and Shia interests now dominated Baghdad. 
Fast forward to 2014, and ISIS has 20 to 30,000 fighters in Iraq and Syria, poised to take over major cities in Anbar province and beyond. Some of the most senior officials in the group were the same Sunni soldiers who had been fired immediately after the U.S. invasion in 2003. They were professional. They knew Iraq better than anyone. Some of them had kept their intelligence files, and they were helping to lead ISIS into the heart of Iraq, one town after the other. U.S. forces are carrying out airstrikes against Islamic State militants operating in northern Iraq. The militant group, also known as ISIS or ISIL, captured new territory over the past week, including towns dominated by religious minorities like Christians and Yazidis. Many civilians from these groups fled into the area's mountains in the scorching August heat. That's when the popular mobilization units really began to form. When Mosul fell to ISIS in 2014, the famous Shia cleric Ayatollah al-Sistani issued a fatwa, a religious edict calling for defensive jihad against ISIS. Some popular mobilization units had formed before then, but that's when it really picked up, mainly in Shia-majority towns, but also in others. Self-defense groups formed to fight against ISIS, push it back, and eventually defeat it. That's where our story starts, and it's told in part by one of our researchers, Fanar Haddad. Well, my name is Fanar Haddad. I am a senior research fellow at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. Uh, Most of my work has focused on Iraq. I've worked on Iraq for the past two decades or so. And uh, much of my work has been on identity politics. But of course, Iraq being Iraq... uh, that you cannot you can't study Iraq in isolation of the broader region, nor can you study identity politics in isolation of broader dynamics in Iraq. Fanar spent a lot of time in Iraq, interviewing people from the communities that had fought against ISIS, and he wrote a great study of the popular mobilization units that you can find on our website. Fanar explained to me that the PMU, that's shorthand for popular mobilization units, is more than one thing. The PMU is a... a, a formally as 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 an organization emerged to repel the threat of uh, ISIS and later on the Islamic State, of course, but it's outgrown that role, to say the least. Today, the PMU uh, is far more than just another force in the forces arrayed against against the Islamic State. Um, given that the major kinetic phase of that war is sort of kind of over, now it's a low-burning low, low insurgency. Um, some PMU units are still, of course, involved in that, uh, involved in holding territory. Uh, Iraqi forces are stretched, so they are needed on that on that front. But more broadly, I think, uh, particularly the more relevant, shall we say, or the more politically relevant uh, units in the PMUs, namely the ones that entered politics, namely the Iran-leaning ones, the Iran-sponsored ones who entered the political system in the elections of 2018, um, and uh, made substantial gains in 2018. For them, uh, there's there's uh, other conflicts at play, um, and I'd say that broadly speaking, you could. There's two sets of conflicts. I think one is an international conflict being played out in Iraq on Iraqi soil, and the other is a internal. 
uh, squabble, internal contestation over political narrative and over political spoils. What Fanar is talking about is how the PMU went from being locally organized self-defense forces to a dominant force in Iraqi politics. But how did they get so powerful in the first place? Well, it was in part because they were seen as the group that succeeded against ISIS when the government had failed, when the Iraqi army was on the run. But did the PMU actually deliver the victory over ISIS? I think the PMU as a, as a whole played an important role, but I think it's important not to exaggerate that role. Um, it, I mean, they, it wasn't just the PMU that saved Iraq. I mean, I, I, I bring this up in the report and in some of my previous writings more, in the, um, more to highlight the PMU's own mythology and more to highlight what Iraqi supporters of the PMU, how they view the PMU, the narrative that, and it's a narrative that has a lot of traction, by the way, um, and a lot of currency, is that were it not for the PMU, ISIS would have swept through Baghdad. Uh, and that's a very debatable uh, point, right? But that's not to say that they didn't play a role. At the very least, uh, I mean, I've heard this from security officials from, in the, uh, um, from within the army. Um, they at least say we need to give credit to the PMU phenomenon for boosting morale after the break of, uh, you know, the, the broken morale after, after the fall of Mosul. I mean, it was a real catastrophe uh, for Iraqis. Um, un the unthinkable had happened, so to speak. And this popular mobilization, the videos of tens of thousands of young men sort of rushing to, to volunteer, it created that narrative that, of course, PMU formations ever since have really clung to that, you know, this is the salt of the earth sort of uh, Iraqis rushing selflessly to sacrifice themselves for the, for the, uh, um, to save uh, Iraq and to save their fellow Iraqis. So the narrative is that the PMU is the backbone of the fight against ISIS. So once ISIS is on the run, the PMU gets a huge amount of influence in Iraqi politics. Some of their leaders enter the 2018 elections and they get represented in government. And with that power, they helped push through legislation that makes the PMU part of the Iraqi state. That's what Fanar means when he calls the PMU a hybrid actor in a hybrid state. From 2018 onwards, there was always this talk about the government needs to rein in the militias. And I always felt that that was an absurd call, given how intertwined uh, the two were and given how integral um, the, the very PMUs that attract this sort of, this sort of uh, recommendation, how integral they are to the uh, establishment of the tw 2018 government. Fanar means this quite literally. For example, a PMU leader named Hadi al-Amiri almost fully controls the Iraqi Ministry of the Interior. This dichotomy of state and non-state security actor or state and militia sort of falls apart when you when you see that the Ministry of Interior is controlled by uh, forces from within the PMU. Uh, so there's an intertwinement there uh, that makes even uh, an institution that is so expressive of the state, the formal state, um, such as the Ministry of Interior, makes it sort of... Uh, um, part PMU, part not. So this reflects the hybridity of the Iraqi state. This isn't something that began with the PMU. This isn't something that the PMU created. The main point, I think, that, that I tried to make in this report and, in, and elsewhere as well, uh, is that the PMU, might, the PMU phenomenon might have accelerated um, pre-existing trends. It might have further entrenched uh, uh, pre-existing trends and made them irreversible, but they did not create this. 2014 
with 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 the PMU, I think one of the one of the new novel phenomena was the um, mainstreaming of these paramilitary groups. Just pause for a second and think about this. In 2014, you had an almost spontaneous uprising of local defense forces formed to fight ISIS on their own doorstep. Only four years later, they are running important parts of the Iraqi government, and they're recognized as a legitimate force in Iraq. So generally speaking, yes, I think that the, the, there's a the, the state recognition is something they, they desperately sort of uh, fought for uh, on their inception in 2014. And they were very resistant to labels like militia, for example. Um, and they've been banging on about them being how, how they are a, a uh, formal security actor since 2014. And in many ways, they got their wish. By about 2017, they got their wish. They got their recognition, several bouts of legislation into 2018 as well um, that made them a part, part of the state formally. But within that, there's a, there's a spectrum. Um, some uh, formations within the PMU are less, less attached to that ideal than others. They all want the cover of formal state actor. But some are happier having one foot in the state and one foot out. Some would rather have a more professionalized, standardized relationship with state institutions. Um, and often this is for self-serving reasons, for example, pensions, uh, uh, salaries and the like. Individual PMU fighters would, would want, and I think it comes up in the study uh, of someone I interviewed who said absolutely he'd welcome more formalization. And the reason he gave was, was uh, Career development, one, and also uh, salaries and the like and, and benefits to standardize that and secure that. So they're a formal state actor, but they have a foot outside the state, too. And this means when they step out of line, there isn't much the Iraqi government can do. The reality is that, as I said, there is that culture of impunity. Uh, the government, in theory, uh, there are mechanisms within uh, uh, various ministries and various agencies that uh, can hold security actors to account, let's say a soldier or a policeman or what have you. That potential is not, I, in my opinion, is not there when it comes to the stronger PMU formations, right? And some of the examples that I, I used in the um, in the report are where PMU, Asab uh, al-Haq, I think it was, were involved in uh, the kidnapping of a high-ranking officer in the Ministry of Interior. And the point that I made is that the reverse could not happen. There's no way that the Ministry of Interior could kidnap or arrest a high-ranking member of Asab al-Haq. It wouldn't happen. So it's not a formal thing. It's not that, the, the, you know, formally, the, it's, it's more, this is the in informal relationship uh, between the various agencies. And I think the Iraqi government, not that they do have a clean record when it comes to prosecuting or, 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 or disciplining uh, security officials and security actors, um, but uh, the potential for them to do so is far less when it comes to the, the PMU. In fact, I think it's non-existent. So that's one risk. The PMU can get away with a lot inside Iraq. But there's another risk. Many of the PMU units have ties to Tehran, and are considered politically aligned with Iran. This isn't a problem in itself. The Iraqi government is Shia-controlled and has a pretty good relationship with Iran on a lot of issues. But the PMU ties might run deeper and might drag Iraq into the U.S. crosshairs, which are very much focused on Iran. At least that's what some people think. Iran vowed revenge after the U.S. assassinated a top commander in the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. 
Major General Qasem Soleimani was the chief architect of Iran's strategic alliances and a web of battle-hardened fighting forces which he helped build stand ready to enact retribution. Iran could strike back at U.S. facilities in Iraq through what are known as the Popular Mobilization Forces, or PMF. This coalition of predominantly Iraqi Shiite paramilitary fighters include units that fought house to house to push Islamic State out of Iraq. Washington blames elements of the PMF for rocket attacks on U.S. bases, which killed an American contractor. U.S. airstrikes on PMF leaders prompted the militia to lay siege to the U.S. embassy last week. A senior PMF commander was killed in the same airstrike that took out Soleimani in Baghdad Thursday night. This is where the danger comes in. Um, and it's the role that certain PMU actors play in... Um, in making Iraq a battlefield for Iranian-American rivalries. Iraq turning into a battlefield on which America and its allies and Iran and its allies uh, message each other and, 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 and exert force and project power uh, uh, to each other and essentially dragging Iraq into regional conflicts that it can ill afford. Um, to put it at a much simpler, let's say, a less spectacular uh, way, at the very least, uh, it complicates Iraq's balancing act that it's the Iraq is forced to play between its interests uh, uh, with the Americans and its interests with the Iranians or the relationship with the two. Um, Iraq has to ha has to have that balancing act, and I think certain PMU uh, formations um, are in a position to upset that. And I should also uh, caveat that with with one thing: whether or not that potential spoiler role is played depends on the uh, uh, tenor of, of Iranian-American relations at any given time. So if Iranian-American relations are maximum resistance versus maximum pressure, as they unfortunately are today, then that potential becomes realized. Once, if, if a modus vivendi is established between America and Iran, then uh, I don't see these actors necessarily uh, upsetting the balancing act that Iraq needs to play between the two sides. That doesn't mean Iran necessarily controls the PMUs. I would caution against treating Iran as a puppeteer uh, when it comes to PMU formations. Um, the relation, I think, is more symbiotic and in some cases leans on ideological and personal uh, uh, ties that far predate uh, the emergence of the PMU as a formal institution. There, there, there's, there's personal links tying uh, uh, IRGC personnel or, or Iranian politicians, Iranian security actors with key uh, PMU uh, formations and key PMU personalities. What worries people who study the PMU is that there doesn't really seem to be a way to rein them in, to control them, like you might control a regular army. There's a law, it's called Law 328, which is meant to give the prime minister better command and control over the PMU. But the Iraqi government is in a weak position. Even if the PM wanted to order around the popular mobilization units, he might not get the votes in Parliament, where the PMU is a serious player. What this points to, for Fanar, is how delicate the balances of power are, and how tough it is to make things change in Iraq. But it's also what gives him some hope that there might be opportunities to. Uh, I mean, look, uh, Iraqi politics, I mean, like politics anywhere, really, it's, it, there's, there's, a, there's a, a constant tug of war, constant sort of tension between various power centers and, and uh, interests. Um, in the Iraqi case, of course, it's 
very decentralized and it's also national and transnational. Now, for the better part of the last uh, two or three years, the I would say in the Adel Abdel Mahdi government, uh, the Iran-linked uh, elements of the PMU, the political wing of the PMUs, I think they uh, really entrenched and deepened their interests and their position and their power in Iraq, uh, particularly where security is concerned, um, and also in formal politics. That was is not permanent, and I think today the winds have shifted. Um, they're slightly, slightly, I'd say, on the back foot. Uh, they don't have the uh, several of the cards that they did have in the previous uh, two or three years. So possibly there might be a window of opportunity here. Um, but I mean, again, this sort of a, a, a meta recommendation, we need to be modest in what we could expect, right? So uh, rather than sort of uh, eliminating the, uh, such actors from the Iraqi political scene, that's not going to happen. Um, it's a case of recalibrating the balance of power between these various uh, power centers in Iraqi politics and in the Iraqi security establishment. And I think that such a recalibration has more chance of, of success or even initiation today, given uh, the assassination of, of Qasem Soleimani and uh, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, given uh, the situation in Iran with the uh, sanctions, with the weight of sanctions, with the corona, of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, Iran has its own domestic concerns and domestic pressures and, and constraints that they didn't have uh, over much of the last three years. Um, given that there's a new government coming in, given the weight of the protest movement, given and so forth, so on and so forth, all of this potentially could open a window of opportunity with which if, again, a sufficiently coherent and cohesive government were to emerge, uh, a recalibration of the kind that I, I, I mentioned might, might just at least be initiated. Um, so that's that's uh, uh, something that that uh, to build on. I think there is a window of opportunity, but you know, it's, it's, we need to be realistic in what can be achieved here. This has been half of the story we want to tell about ISIS. This half is about the rise of the PMU as a mainly Shia-driven response to ISIS's march on Iraq in 2014. It's about how a broad coalition of militia groups helped win the fight against ISIS, for now, and then become a major player in Iraqi politics. Next week, we want to tell another half of the story about what happens to people when ISIS is driven out of their towns, what happens to the people who have been forced to work for ISIS as cooks, drivers, helpers, what happens to the women forced to marry ISIS fighters or to the ones who chose to marry them? What happens to the men who joined ISIS and then ran away? That's what we'll take up in the next episode. Probably most people were only co cooperating with IS um, because they needed to do that in order to survive. Uh, resistance was punishable by death um, and therefore uh, futile and very dangerous. Leaving these areas um, controlled by IS was often not an option um, because of the heavy cost of resettlement elsewhere or threats of violence by IS. But there was still a perception among many Iraqis in other parts of the country that these people who they thought voluntarily stayed in IS-controlled territory were um, de facto collaborators and complicit in all of IS's crimes just by virtue of living there. For now, a big thanks to Fanar Haddad for the kind of insights you can really only get from the ground. And thanks to you for listening to Hybrid Wars. This is a United Nations University Center for Policy Research podcast recording.
The views expressed are those of the speakers.